Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathan. And I'm Nathaniel. And today we're joined by Tamara F. Lawson, the Tony Rembe Dean and Professor of Law at the University of Washington School of Law in Seattle. Lawson majored in law right here at Claremont McKenna College before earning a JD from the University of San Francisco School of Law and an LLM from Georgetown University Law Center. Prior to joining the Legal Academy, Lawson served as a deputy district attorney at the Clark County District Attorney's Office in Las Vegas, Nevada. A renowned teacher and scholar, her publications are extensive, and her research has appeared in prestigious law journals. Her article, A Fresh Cut in an Old Wound, a critical analysis of the Trayvon Martin killing, the public outcry, the prosecutor's discretion, and the, and the stand your ground law, garnered Lawson media appearances as a legal expert. And she was selected as the reporter for the American Bar Association's National Task Force on Stand Your Ground Laws. Her timely research on excessive force cases is published in Powerless Against Police Brutality, A Felon Story, and in Awakening the American Jury, Did the Killing of George Floyd Alter Juror Deliberations Forever? Dean Lawson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here, back on campus. Yeah. Uh, so I'd first like to ask if you could just share a bit about your upbringing. Um, where did you grow up? How did your upbringing influence your path up until this point? Well, I grew up in Las Vegas. I was born here in Los Angeles, and we moved to Las Vegas when I was three, year old, three years old. And I like to tell the story that I didn't agree when I was even three. I remember having my arguments. So I guess I was had lawyer brain even at three years old. But no one ever asked me. Back then, they didn't ask three-year-olds what they wanted to do. But my reasons for not wanting to leave California were... There was no beach in Las Vegas, so for my little lifestyle, that was big. And there, at the time, was no Toys R Us, which, you know, where's the toy store is what I wanted to know. But I grew up in Las Vegas. Um, I went to uh, Catholic schools in Las Vegas, Bishop Gorman High School. And then when I was in charge of myself, I came right back to California and uh, joined you all here at Claremont McKenna College and then law school in California. And I'm a California lawyer and a Nevada lawyer. And I went back to the prosecutor's office in uh, Las Vegas. And I, in that office, uh, worked in various departments. I worked um, with mental commitment court. I worked with bail bonds. I worked with what we would call all the quasi-criminal units, business, um, etc. But then I also worked special victims unit, domestic violence, including domestic violence homicides. I've argued cases before the Nevada Supreme Court, including death penalty appeals. So I had a very uh, broad um, and deep uh, training at the prosecutor's office, including making charging decisions, like I said, all the way up to appellate work at the state Supreme Court level. Um, <clears throat> but I, I still had a desire to be in the academic realm. When I was a student uh, in law school, I was a tutor, and um, I really valued that time. I also uh, worked in the law library, and I was recruited by my uh, uh, superiors to be a law librarian, actually. But I said, no, I owe it to myself to use my law degree a little bit in court. And um, 
But I still think I had that law librarian brain in the sense of always um, inquisitive and uh, researching and finding out the details. So I think that's why the academic work is so exciting to me even now um, as there's something new to explore and to bring to the public's eye at all times. And so what do you think initially drew you to the law then? Was it once you actually came to to CMC and um, you majored in government. Yeah. Uh, was it a class here that helped influence your, your decision making? Um, I wanted to be a lawyer before I got to CMC. I think in our family, um, you know, my grandfather really instilled in our family a, a strong sense of um, uh, fighting for racial justice and racial equity. He was born in 1888 and he was in an era where you know, there were laws enacted to prevent him to vote from voting, owning property, from education. And, and I was told these stories growing up about um, what my grandfather went through to own property and this property should never leave our family. And I just think some of those uh, stories were ingrained in me about there should be justice. And in, I think it was around sixth grade, when I had my first civics class and learned about laws and who makes the laws, and most of the elected officials are lawyers and they understand the laws, and I thought, well, I need to be a lawyer then, and I need to be part of the group that understands the law and makes the law. And that was part of my goal even prior to coming uh, to CMC. But CMC was the perfect school for me because of the strong emphasis in the government major. And I still today have the Federalist Papers and de Tocqueville's Democracy in America on my shelf in the Dean Suite. And I refer to them at times, you know, we're in a, interesting times around issues of democracy and, and issues of government. I'm sure you guys were probably watching the votes, you know, who's going to be the Speaker of the House and different things. Um, but the foundation of CMC helped launch me into the career that I have now, but the spark started a little bit sooner. I love that sixth grade imagery <laughs> of like, there's a very clear logical path here. Like, oh, this is how like to make change. Yeah. I have a question regarding like, I mean, it sounds like very young, you had this idea of this path. Were there points along that path where you felt, uh, adversity might be a strong word, but like where you felt, mm, maybe this isn't for me, maybe I wanna do something else. If so, you know, what moments were there? What were you thinking other career paths could possibly be, just generally? Okay, my answer is kind of boring. No, I never actually deviated from the desire to be a lawyer, of course. Law school is challenging. Um, I had that, you know, experience that one L's have that this is insane. Like I re do remember as a one L when I got there in orientation, someone was telling me, you know, there's one exam, and I was like, you're lying. There's not one exam. There's like the quiz, and then there's the this. No, no, no. In law school, it's not so much about that now, but the traditional law school model, there's one exam in each class. Good day, bad day, sorry, that's that's how it goes. Um, so that was a, an issue and struggle and also the the density of the material in the law, law school curriculum was, um, you know, a shift from undergraduate training and I went straight from, you know, undergraduate right to law school so I can't blame it on I was older and I was whatever. But 
It's an immersion. It's an immersion into a new way of thinking and a new way of solving problems. But I feel that the foundation here at CMC, which is heavy on the critical thinking, um, really prepared me for law school. Really quick, um, you said it's a new way of solving problems. Can you describe what you mean by that? Yes. Yeah, so it, it's really stark when you're in a room of non-lawyers and you're used to being in a room of lawyers because lawyers are trained to think of things in these like little outlines for issue, rule, analysis, conclusion. So lawyer brain is constantly issue spotting. And when you with non-lawyer brains, they're like you're sitting there like, why are they on the wrong issue? That is not the issue. So you're constant. That's part of the training, a new way of thinking that you, you after you identify the issue, what is the rule that applies to that issue? How do these facts apply to that rule? And then is that an issue? It may be an issue, but is it a dispositive issue? Is it a case determinative issue? And so that's how you're t trained to think and to come to appropriate conclusions. So jumping over a bit to uh, your time in the district attorney's office, um, I, I was curious um, how you were able to balance a sense of enacting justice um, in, in a fair manner alongside um, the notion that I, I imagine there were a lot of black Americans who went through the district attorney's office. So how you balanced um, basically going through that experience um, in terms of trying to do right by the law, but also understanding that the law does have like racial bias built into it. Um, so I'm curious about that experience and how it shaped you. And um, if you could go back to it, would you do anything different today? I don't know that I would do anything different. I'll think of that for a second. But it was a dynamic experience, so if you want to think of it in stark racial terms, because I was in the criminal division. There were at least you know, 70, 80 lawyers in that division. And at the time that I was there, there were three black lawyers. So at, from that side of it, it's already a little bit of stark uh, difference. And then, as you mentioned, there's a different reality uh, of the accused as far as the racial dynamics there. Um, one example I could share when I was a prosecutor, I rarely went to the jail. Most of the public defenders go to the jail. But at times where the police were doing a lineup, uh, they would have a, a prosecutor come and, and be part of that uh, process. And it was one of the real examples I got to participate in about um, cross-cultural identification, which is criticized in eyewitness identification cases. It's often the source of wrongful convictions where um, people from different races are not accurate in identifying each other. Because when you're not of the same racial group, the theory is that you look at more general, general features and not precise, keen features as well. So I would see the public defenders putting together a lineup of black suspects, and they were in charge of that, right? Mostly. I was there to observe if there was a constitutional problem, but I always thought they were creating the worst lineups for their clients, that they were, like, it was making it obvious that their client didn't look anything like these other men. But 
it was because I was in the same racial group as these men and I could see the unique differences in them and their attorneys who were usually not in that same group were looking at generalized features and you know the afro or this or that I don't know but there, there are nuances in the criminal justice system that lead to what we understand to be racial bias and and the and the you know uh, pandemic or endemic that we have around mass incarceration and other issues, and it's those subtle moments that things like that can occur, um, and uh, more training is needed. I, that's all I can say about that. Hmm. I was going to ask about your experience. It's a similar kind of vein of that question, but your experience almost kind of reconciling uh, being not only participating, but being a very, you know, um, prof- uh, active member in a, you know, a system of justice that many people, you could say, wish to be overhauled and re, re kind of established, abolished even as a, as a word that's thrown around. I guess my experience or my question is like, how do you reconcile being within that and working to change it? And how do you how do you feel about changing it? You know, what is a, a, a reasonable and steps that need to be taken for more equity um, within the criminal justice system? Well, I have colleagues that are criminal justice scholars and uh, their work is well known and they talk about um, that it's not appropriate for blacks to be prosecutors because of the exact reasons that you've laid out. Um, And they say that with great authority, and they say that having been prosecutors, some of those scholars themselves, um, but um, laying out that you cannot be helpful if the system itself is corrupt or discriminatory or problematic. Um, The pushback I would give to that, though, is when you're in that system, it's not just um, the defendants that they're disproportionately people of color. It's the victims that are also disproportionately people's, people of color. And I remember very specifically victims that were being overlooked if I had not been on their case. Um, and also juries that were not seeing their injury or their harm in any real way if I had not been there to advocate that their injury was just as um, horrific, just as harmful, just as worthy of accountability as um, injury of any other victim. It's like in the movie, A Time to Kill. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's kind of old now. But in the closing argument, the defense attorney um, asked the jury to imagine if the victim had been of a different race, if it was a white little girl instead of a black little girl, et cetera. And so that race switching um, technique um, is something that can be used not just for defendants, but also for victims. So who is there for the victim's rights is another question that has to be looked at as we look to reform uh, the criminal justice system. Switching a bit over again to um the recent pulling of um, UW School of Law from the ranking system. Um, I'm curious to hear, and I, I don't know how much you uh, you can say about this being the dean there now, but um, I mean, when I was reading uh, this quote you had talking about um, 
um, how the current methodology undercuts the mission, values, and commitment to an equitable and inclusive vision for legal education society. Um, obviously, Claremont McKenna, we're still on the U.S. news ranking system, um, but we have had more of a push towards uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion lately. Um, so, speaking either about CMC specifically or just um, undergraduate schools or other law schools generally, um, how do you think the um, ranking system plays into diversity, equity, and inclusion? And do you think that it's kind of like if if a school is to promote DEI, they have to leave the ranking system or is there a, a middle ground? Well, I guess we need to bring the ranking systems in here for this kind of toe-to-toe um, -toe debate because it, it has to do with what they are putting in their metrics. Mm -hmm. Um, so there are all types of ranking systems, and you're referring to the current, you know, I guess, hot topic among law school uh, deans and U.S. News, and is also now bled over to medical school because Harvard uh, Medical School has also stepped out of U.S. News. So I think 24 law schools have stepped out of, of U.S. News. So uh, UW does not stand alone. We stand with Yale, who is in the number one slot, and Harvard and some other schools, but. The challenge, I think, in ranking or putting any kind of one-size-fits-all scoreboard over the, the complexities of an education, even a liberal arts education, a law school education, I think in the law school context, we're talking about a larger lens of justice. Like the goal of a law school is to train um, leaders that pursue justice. And in order to do that, the theory is, or some many suggest, that you need a diverse population to represent and serve a diverse population. And law, law schools are not producing a diverse population. The, the legal profession itself is not a diverse profession. And if you're going to get points, or whatever they're going to call them, a credit, you know, incentive, prestige for picking uh, students that don't fully embrace that mission, um, maybe that's those are not the right categories because the U.S. News on its own is is deciding the categories. Another thing that underlying the debate at the, of the U.S. News and, and um, some of the dean's concerns is we are accredited law schools and we're accredited by the American Bar Association and they focus and require us to pursue diversity, diversity among the students, diversity among the faculty. Um, they require us to uh, spend our curriculum on character formation, professional identity. There's a new standard, standard 303C, that requires every law school to train on anti-racism, um, anti-bias, cultural competence, not only in orientation, but at least one other time in the curriculum. And so when you look at the the, the movement and innovations and changes in the accreditation standards of what makes a law school worthy to produce students, to, to sit for the license, and to be lawyers in the state. And those categories are not even considered or, or weighed, valued by the ranking system. 
we need to, you know, revisit that. We need to reform it to incentivize the right priorities. And I think that's what that is at the core of, of that statement and at the core of um, the work in collaboration with the faculty and the alumni board and all of those that collaborated and as we made that decision. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. I didn't realize that they, the, the, the thing you cited about them having to take anti-racist classes and stuff like that, especially because we don't have that in public schools even in many places in America. It's a very new standard. It was passed February 2022, and so law schools are working on that. But the University of Washington has been a leader in that particular area and has had courses in this since 2016, well before the summer of racial reckoning and well before this was the public flashpoint um, to, to talk about. Um, unfortunately, we are almost at time now, so I think I'm just going to go ahead and ask a quick question to wrap up. Um, I just want to know if you had any general reading suggestions uh, regarding your ath talk topic today or just anything law related or anything fun even. Oh, okay. Um, I was asked recently what was my favorite book, legal book, and um, I'm going to give you an obscure one just to broaden your horizons, Amnesty After Atrocity. And that talks about um, how different cultures and communities in Africa managed uh, rebuilding and reconciling after they've experienced atrocities. And it gives you another lens to criminal punishment and alternatives to what we see as mass mass incarceration. And maybe we'll broaden your thinking, is there any appropriate time where amnesty should ever be granted, even in the face of facts that prove that there was a harm? Dean Lawson, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.